Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. Georgia Baker's story is one of resilience. She's a star of the Australian cycling team, but she's overcome her fair share of adversity both on and off the bike. A week before taking on a life-changing opportunity overseas, Georgia lost her father to a heart attack. And then in 2017, her own heart condition unexpectedly forced Georgia out of a race before she received a diagnosis that would change her world. Not one to let setbacks stand in the way of her goals, Georgia is now preparing for her second Olympics. But it all began for Georgia in the small town of Perth. Nope, not that one. Perth in Tasmania, where she grew up helping her dad on their family farm. I remember from a very young age just helping him in the shearing shed and marking lambs and, you know, <laughs> running amok with my sister on our bikes. Um, yeah, I learned to drive the ute and the tractor when I was eight just so I could help him feed the, <laughs> and the cattle. Cool. Um, even though I got it bogged a few times. <laughs> but, yeah, I suppose personality-wise I wasn't, I wasn't the shy type, I suppose. Um, I loved to perform <laughs> in front of my grandparents and had, I was full of energy and always, yeah, wanted to try different things, so... Every time I hear people talk about you, I hear people say um, Perth resident and then Tasmanian and I get very confused. Uh, Why is it that they always refer to you from Perth and Tasmania? Oh, well, yes, I am from Perth, Tasmania. So (laughs) there's a small country town, um, probably about 15 minutes out of Launceston. Um, It's only about a population of 3,000 people. Yeah, it is a small little town. You go through there on your way to Hobart but it's very unknown and sometimes I suppose still to this day I get confused and some people say I'm from Perth, WA (laughs) and I'm like, no, I'm Tasmanian and I'm proud to be Tasmanian. (laughs) Were you always a sporty kid? Do you play lots of sports or was it always just cycling and on your bike? No, I I played heaps of sports. Like I was very, very obsessed with sport actually. Um, From a young age I started swimming and I, I swam competitively I also played netball all the way through until pretty much my cycling career. I had to make a decision on what I wanted to do. Um, And I also was a black belt in taekwondo. A lot of people don't believe me, actually. Um, (laughs) I don't probably come across as the aggressive type, but I suppose when I've got to defend myself, I know what to do. (laughs) Do you pull out some moves when they don't believe you? A lot of people have asked me, and I actually have a photo of my black belt saved on my phone because half the time people don't believe me. So I have to pull it out and be like, no, this is my black belt. It's got my name embroidered on it. I was a black belt. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, I got into triathlons and stuff as well. And that's kind of where my first love of cycling started. But I was only really on a mountain bike um, and then developed into a on like onto the road bike kind of on my last year of triathlon. So the track was just a completely different skill set to the road. Did you dream of competing in the Olympics as a kid? Was that something that you were you were into and you were obsessed with at all? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like um, growing up, I suppose you know kids always have that that one kind of career option that they wanted to do. And for me, I just was obsessed with the Olympics. I just wanted to go to the Olympics. And I remember you know staying up really late watching the Olympic Games, and I would actually draw uh, spreadsheets and write spreadsheets up. Um, and at the time, I was obsessed with Ian Thorpe and I just thought he was amazing. <laughs> and I would like collect and I would have all these books and everything and folders <laughs> and all these times and, you know, I would write these spreadsheets and they'll be colour coordinated and highlighted. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, I was obsessed with it. So for me, it was like that was just my childhood <laughs> dream was to be an Olympian and to be a sports person. 
So triathlons then, um, you got on a road bike from there. When did cycling then start getting serious for you? Cycling probably started getting serious uh, when I was in year 11. Um, so yeah, 2011. I was still playing netball at the time and, you know, I, I love netball and I still do. And it was got to the point where I had to, I was juggling, you know, riding my bike and playing netball. I remember, you know, doing um, netball sessions and I would have to ride home to get my training in. You know, I'd go to training with my team and I'd have to get changed, put my lycra on and put my front lights on so I could get my training in for the day because I was just, I really liked both. And then I got selected for my first States team for Tasmania and that was kind of like the real turning point. And my coach at the time, Ron Bryan, he was the talent ID coach and he said, look, you know, you really need to make a decision here. And so I decided then that, you know, I, I love cycling. And for me it was, it was still a hard decision because they are so different. You know, I love the team aspect of netball and I had some great friends in, in, my, in my netball community as well. So, but I was just so in love with the sport and I could see myself, you know, I, it was a challenge and I was pushing myself more and more. So I decided to fully commit to cycling and, um, yeah, kind of made, went along that pathway. Because you got picked up in a talent ID search. How did that all come about? Explain that to me. Yeah, so at my school, um, our actual PE teachers kind of just had selected probably about five of the students um, to go to the Tasmanian Institute of Sport Talent ID program. So what that involved was, you know, we would go through a series of testing. Um, it would be how high you could jump and the beep test and all different types of things. And I got selected for three different sports. So I got selected for cycling, rowing and basketball. I was not keen on basketball just because I'd played netball so much and yep, my cool. mum and dad were like, Georgia, we're not getting up early to take you to rowing. <laughs> uh, so it made my selection pretty easy and I was at the time, like I was doing triathlons, so I also had a love for cycling and it was pretty easy for me to choose cycling. Um, and then I went into the National Identification Program, so that was the next stepping stone after that. And after that, progr- after that national program, I went into the Tasmanian Institute of Sport. What were your parents like during that time? How did they, your mum and dad, foster your talent and your love of cycling and sport? They're super encouraging. They were always, from both my sister and I, um, always pushing us to try different things and wanting us to achieve great things. And if we loved it, you know, that's that was a bonus. Um, they didn't force us to do anything we didn't want to do, but they also had a very um, strong like opinion that if I committed to something, I have to fully commit to it. Um, but with, with cycling in particular, it was one of those things that I did, it was a, became a family kind of environment. So my dad didn't like me training out on the road by myself on the like country roads in Tasmania. So he got himself a bike and yeah, came riding with me as well. So it was kind of a thing that we did together. And I remember obviously like we had some very big arguments on the road <laughs> if he was riding too fast because at, when I first started, my dad was actually stronger than me. Um, so on the road, right. he would, he would drop me, he would ride really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was a very, very fit man. Um, I remember coming home in tears a lot of times because we would argue and, <laughs> but I eventually got my payback. Don't you worry when I got fitter. Yeah, but, I bet. Um, <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, it was a really nice thing that I could do with my dad. 
and my cousins Harry and my uncle also started writing as well. So it kind of became like a baker thing that would do on the weekends. It was really cool. We had our own little baker bunch. When did it kind of dawn on you then that this is a path that could get you to the Olympics? You might have been having um, your obsession with Ian Thorpe and swimming, but the Olympics was something that you could then aspire to be in, in cycling. Um, yeah, I think when I first when I first made my actual, just my state team, to be honest, like I was just really driven and I got more hope when I made my first um, junior world championship team as well. So, and that was the first time I'd actually flown overseas to race my bike. Um, I went to Moscow in Russia and yeah, from then on, I was just like, oh, I was always just pushing myself in the best next thing. So for me, I don't know, I never really had a huge amount of doubt that I wouldn't be able to make it to the Olympics. I know that sounds a little bit strange, but I just really, I just really wanted to, to achieve that. And I knew that if I put my mind to it, I could eventually get there. How old were you when you went to the World Champs for the first time in Russia? I would have been 17. Wow. Very cool. Can you take me back then? Um, what was it like when you first took on the velodrome? I first got on the bike like properly on the on the velodrome when I was about 16 years old. Um, I was in year 10 and I remember, yeah, my first experience on the track and it was so nerve-wracking. I hadn't experienced anything like this before and I remember just getting up there and I'd been told to pedal really quickly because the banking is so steep, just pedal really fast and you won't slip down. I remember doing my first lap and my back, my back wheel was slipping on the blue line, which is probably halfway up the velodrome. And I was freaking out and I just pedaled and pedaled so fast. And then, yeah, after doing a couple of laps, I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like it was such an adrenaline rush. Um, and I was pretty much hooked from those, that first day and that first lap. Do we not, like when we look at the velodrome um, on TV, you just can't get a sense of how steep that incline really is. And it's so much steeper in real life. Yeah, I think so. Like, um, I have I've had a lot of friends actually that have come out and watched me race, and they've seen races of, of me on the TV. And they when they actually come out, and you can stand like if you're watching the racing, you can stand in the um, banking, so above the banking, and you can look down. And then they, that's when they realise, wow, like how do you ride on this? And it's yeah, until you really witness it, it is. It is very, very different to what you see on the TV. Are all velodromes the same? Is the surface the same? And what is that surface like should you crash on it? Oh, yes. Yeah. So every velodrome's different. Um, they've all got different shapes. Some are longer than others. Some are shorter. I remember my home velodrome is actually a very, it's 283 metres long and a normal standard velodrome is 250 metres long. So I remember doing state championships and you're doing a 2K um, individual pursuit and you're doing seven and a half laps or just seven laps. So it was, it's very different. They're all made out of different things as well, all different type of timbers. And if you crash on them, though, you do get a lot of burns and splinters and it depends where depends whereabouts you crash. If you crash in the straight, you're most likely to get a lot of splinters and it's just, yeah, you have a lot of people pulling them out for you after a few days later. I've actually had to go into surgery for one splinter, to be honest. Um, I had one in, t- in my quad. Yeah, I had a really big crash. And I was only under 19, so I wasn't a senior athlete yet. And, yeah, it, I got a splinter in my thigh and it just wouldn't come out. And I, I remember it would be like a couple of weeks and just wasn't budging. 
and I end up having to get yeah go into surgery and get a bit of timber removed and I still have that at home you still have it yeah I still have it <laughs> that's awesome well like in a little specimen jar on your yeah in a little specimen jar <laughs> a bit of the Sydney track <laughs> that's awesome you should collect them and put labels on all of them that's really uh, interesting I, like, I just never thought of it having splinters I just think of it as being a surface that's so smooth like it looks so glossy and smooth but yeah um, yeah that would that would hurt quite a lot um how hard is it then? Because you're in the junior cycling Australian team and junior world champs. How hard is it then to jump to the senior ranks? And how hard is it to really break into that Australian cycling team, that top echelon? Yeah, it is actually really difficult. And particularly at the time that I was coming through, it was a big jump. So from going from the under 19s, you know, a junior world champion, and you think, you know, you're on cloud nine because you're like, wow, I'm a junior world champion. And then you're like, wow, my next step is the senior ranks and you're kind of at the bottom of the food chain again. And mm. you're, just, you're trying to push yourself into that Olympic team or into that, that squad. And for me, it took a couple of years because, you know, things changed. You, your gears changed. You have to be stronger. You're racing against women, not girls. And mm. it was a huge jump. But we're fortunate now within our Cycling Australia program that we actually have an academy, which is a stepping stone below um, our senior podium squad. So it does make the transition a little bit smoother and not as big a jump. And you can see that dream becoming a reality with those, that in-between step, I could, I could imagine. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you're around you're everyone in that podium squad, oh, sorry, in the squad below, um, the academy, they're, they're around our and training environment. They're, they have to live in Adelaide. You know, they're always around us training. So the dream of making the Olympics is always there. You know, it's, it's, it's not as much of a jump. When did it happen for you? When were you finally able to break into those senior ranks in the Australian cycling team? Um, yeah, so for me, it was a very long process. I was, you know, I was, I was training back in Tassie. I really wanted to make the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. I'd been told by, like, numerous people that it was pretty, you know, far-fetched dream. Um, wow. And... It was for me. I was just like, no, I can do it. Like, I don't know. I just didn't have that that doubt in my head, um, and I just didn't want to bring it in, to be honest, because you know that wasn't going to help me achieve anything good on the bike. And it was in 2015. The actual, the Team's Pursuit girls won um, at Paris. They were world champions, and I remember thinking wow, that's great for Australian cycling. But for me to break into this team, I'm like, that's really hard, you know, a world championship mm-hmm. team. And it wasn't until, you know, after 2015, I remember having a target event, which was the Oceania Championships in New Zealand. And that was my opportunity um, to post a really good time in the individual pursuit and to race really well. And if mm-hmm. I didn't do that and I didn't perform, then, you know, I wouldn't have the opportunities to, you know, go away, to be in Adelaide and train with the girls and to prove myself um, but luckily I had a good championship and I raced really well and I was given the opportunity then, um, early 2016, just to actually go away and race with the girls and race in Holland with them. And it wasn't until then and then I was able to prove myself in racing and in training that I slowly kind of had some potential to put my hand up and have a spot in the Teams Pursuit team. It was also a difficult time for you though, wasn't it? Yeah, um, so in 2015 in May, um, my dad passed away from a huge heart attack. He was only 44 and 
it was very, very unexpected for my family. And, you know, that for me was, it, it was a big drive. You know, I, he was someone that like, I trained with all the time. Um, he was always so motivating mm-hmm. and that person I always go to for advice and, you know, he was, he was just pretty much my best friend. So to lose him um, the way it happened just like mm-hmm. completely turned my world upside down and like my family's as well. Um, but it, at this point, so when I lost my dad, I was actually given an opportunity probably. I was meant to leave to go overseas three weeks after he had passed away and, mm. you know, I was like, do I stay? Do I go? I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I wanted to do the right thing by my family. I felt like I had a lot of responsibility with my family, like to look after my mum and my sister. And But then in the back of my mind, I was like, this was like my dream and like I know that my dad would be so disappointed if I didn't go and like achieve. Like he knew mm. how much he, I wanted to do it and how much I wanted to, mm. you know, chase my dreams. And he was someone that was always so positive and motivating. So for me, if I didn't go, I wouldn't just be letting myself down. I'd be letting my dad down as well. So pretty much mm. it was probably two and a half weeks after he passed away, I hopped on the plane and went over to Holland. And that's where, wow. you know, from then on it was just one thing after another I did probably put all my focus just into riding my bike and, mm. yeah, pretty much, yeah, did that for myself but also for my dad as well. I'll, um, I want to talk about that, but where were you when you got news of your dad? Were you in Tasmania or were you in Adelaide? Do you remember? How did you react when you found out? Um, yeah, I was, in, I was in Tasmania. I was at, um, I was at home. So I was meant to be flying out to Adelaide uh, two days after he actually passed away. So we were having a family dinner. Um, we we're going out for dinner because, you know, that was probably the last opportunity I'd be gone for a little while. From Adelaide, I was meant to be flying overseas. So we were already um, just waiting for my dad to come home pretty much. We were, we were getting ready to go. And I, I just had this feeling, I'm like, something's wrong. Like it was 6.30 at night and my dad usually gets home around like 5 o'clock. And I was like, oh, you know, where's dad? And mum's like trying to call him and it's just getting, the phone's getting rung out and, you know, I started to worry. I called my uncle and I was like, look, I'm going to go into the restaurant because we've got a reservation and everyone else can meet me in there and because I just wanted Mm -hmm. to get, I knew something, people weren't saying something. And Mm -hmm. he was just like, no, Georgia, I'm on my way out to your house now. Just stay there, please. And I was like oh, my God, like started Mm. to really, really worry. And anyway, he came in and we were all just sitting in the front living room. Yeah, just myself and my sister and her boyfriend and my mum. And um, my uncle was like, I'm really sorry, but, yeah, Patrick's passed away from a heart attack. And, Mm. like, I can't really remember much from then on, to be quite honest. Um, It was just like I was in huge shock. I was like, this is just a dream. And, yeah, I, I don't really have much memory of that night. I was just so worried about, like, my mum my sister, like, that I put all my energy into them because I was, like, you know, I felt I had a responsibility as part of the family to look after them and the rest of my family as well. That's an incredible burden to, to then have to deal with your own grief, helping your family through grief, but then so soon afterwards having to effectively start living out your dream how did you deal with your grief 
while competing, while living out your dream, knowing this is your chance to, to really break into this team. But how did you feel it? How did you, how did on earth, Georgia, did you pick yourself up for training every single day dealing with that? To be honest, it was like, I don't know if I really dealt with my dad's death until after the Olympic Games. Um, I just would wake up and just be like, I'm very good at uh, focusing on what I have to focus on at time. And I would just put all my thinking and my thoughts into riding my bike well. Because it was just such a shock for my family that I was still in shock. I was in, in some way, I know this is going to sound very strange, but in some way after the Olympic Games, I just had this like thought that I would come home and everything would be okay. Because yeah. I was away from Tasmania for so long, I'd picked up my life um, and moved to Adelaide because I had to be mm. here for training, that I just kind of thought that, you know, I, I kind of had convinced myself that, you know, just if you make yeah. it to the Olympic Games, it'll all be, it all will be well and you'll come home. And, and, yeah, that's when I probably struggled the most. It was probably a good 12 months after my dad passed away is when I had mm. to deal with the grief. Um, I didn't deal with it at the time. Yes, I was upset and okay. I would... I would cry because the thought of my dad would you know it would take my breath away and I'll be like you know but I wasn't I wasn't dealing with it I wasn't coping and <laughs> getting through all of that where my my mum my sister and all my other family members it's like they were at home and they were in you know their normal lifestyle and their normal routines of life so <laughs> they had no other option but to deal with it um, whereas I I kind of had a, <laughs> an outlet and escape from it all I was not at home I wasn't in Tassie I wasn't around <laughs> I didn't go into my mum and dad's room and see my dad's clothes hanging up there. I didn't come home and see my dad's mm. ute or I didn't, you know, I didn't drive past construction work and think, oh, is that my dad every time? You know, like I was completely removed mm. from all of those, those things, all those triggers, I suppose. Um, and, yeah, that's when I came home after the Olympics is when all that came back up again because I realised, wow, I have not dealt with this. After the Olympics, were you able to to grieve, to, um, did you get some help in, in helping yourself to grieve? Yeah, like I, I did. Um, but I, I don't know, I, I put it off for a little while, I think, because like my dad was, he was so strong, like Mm. so, so tough, never complained about anything. You know, he would, you just tackle it head on. And I felt like in a way that if I was, upset or sad that he would be really disappointed with me he's like no like so I would just push it all back like no like I'm, I'm tough like I'm strong you know mm-hmm. like I don't I don't need help I can I can do this by myself I didn't want to be a burden on my family that were already going through so much themselves and I was like no I can I can do this myself um and then it wasn't until probably I actually got a a, a professional contract uh, in a women's road team for Mitchelton Scott and um, and I was overseas and I was living in Gavarate in Italy and mm. it wasn't probably until I was over there and isolated by myself that I realised, wow, like I'm, I'm not okay and I'm not dealing mm. with this. I had some problems started to arise with my own heart and my own conditions and that was, you know, triggering a lot of things as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, my uncle actually flew over from Australia and then I think he kind of realised like 
not only my heart issues is that I had to come home, but also like I did need a bit of help um, mentally as well. For your dad, did it feel, was he a bit of like your guardian angel? Because things really happened for you and your dreams were coming true. Did you always think in a way that your dad was there and he was helping you along the way? Was he a bit like your guardian angel that finally you, you broke into all these teams and everything you'd ever dreamed of and worked hard for was finally happening? Did it feel like he was still there? Yeah, definitely. I definitely felt that. The year that he passed away, I had some great success on the road as well and that's why I obviously got offered a contract um, with a professional team on the road. And I am a little bit like superstitious and things like that as well. So, like, you know, things would happen and I'm like, oh, that was my dad, you know, like, yeah, little things like that would happen. And I know that he was, yeah, definitely guiding me in the right direction. It must have been um, special but somewhat bittersweet in a way to be selected for your first Olympics. Um, you wanted to make Rio. People told you it wasn't going to be possible, but suddenly it was possible. You were part of uh, the endurance team. How close is does that team have to be? Yeah, we were really close. Um, I feel like probably now we're a little bit we're even closer, but in 2016, yeah, it was a close team. Um, you have to be, you know. Obviously, sometimes we butt heads and we disagree, but I think that's that comes that goes with any team, any sporting team. But you know, we we had to line up on the start line at Rio and like be able to look at each other and be like, "I've got your back, you've got my back. Let's just, you know, mm. go hard." <laughs> and yeah, you have to have a good connection with your teammates to be able to put everything on the line for them and for yourself. Were you favoured coming into Rio, your team? Um, you said that they were world champions the year before. They had that rainbow jersey. Obviously, it would make your team favourites um, for Rio. Where did you guys stand in in kind of like the rankings or expectations? Yeah, we we were favoured, and yeah, we were definitely up there between us and probably Great Britain. I think um, so. There was a lot of pressure, but I suppose we didn't really at the time. We didn't really feel it. We were just training hard and. Yeah, it was the Olympic Games, so we're just going to do our best. We can hear in your voice um, something happened a couple of days before the race. It all came kind of crashing down. Can you can you take me there? What happened? Yeah, so three days before our qualifying uh, for the team's pursuit, it was a training run just like any other day. We were doing a flying two-kilometre effort and yeah, we were coming down from the top of the track down to the bottom of the track and um, there was a touch of wheels. I hit the wheel in front of me um, and I was second wheel at the time. And from that, I, I hit the wheel, so I crashed. And then the two riders behind me, my two teammates, um, also crashed. And the rider that was off the back, so we have like one rider that sits probably 10 metres off the back. So it was a big, you know, dominoes effect. And, yeah, that was, mm. that was horrible and it still makes me feel kind of sick to the, this day thinking about that. And I was like, oh, my God, like how could this happen? And obviously I mm. felt like, you know, I felt so much responsibility because I'm the one who clipped the wheel and if I didn't clip the wheel, like the crash wouldn't have happened. And, you know, we had some pretty severe injuries as well and... 
you know, one of my teammates, Mel, had to be literally put on her bike, like carried onto her bike for us to line up because she was injured so badly. And we had other teammates, you know, had done the ACL on their shoulder, um, a lot of skin off, a lot of burns. Mm. And, yeah, I just remember, like, getting picked up off the track and feeling just horrible. And, yeah, it was the quietest trip home. I remember from the velodrome back to the village. I just just did not want to talk to anyone and I just felt sick. We had a day just to kind of process of what had happened. But then the next day we went back out to training and it was we just tried to do our best with what we had and it was like, no, Mm. game on. Your teammates wouldn't have blamed you though. You said you felt guilty but... Did they blame you or? Uh, no, no, no. They were great. Um, it was just probably all from me. You know, there's probably a lot of things that went into that crash, but mm. at the time um, I felt solely responsible. And, you know, a lot of people saying, you know, crashes happen, this kind of thing happens. Mm. And, and it does, you know, bike mm. racing stuff happens like this all the time. Like it's a part of cycling. But for it to happen at like, the biggest event you possibly could <laughs> think of three days prior to, cra- to racing and you work so hard for that one event. Mm. You know, everyone has just been like eye on the prize, Olympic gold, like that was it. Mm. And for this to happen, I just felt, yeah, felt solely responsible. I wanted all my teammates to be angry at me, to, ye- to, <laughs> to yell at me and tell me that I stuffed up because I felt so bad. But they didn't. They were the complete opposite. They were like, look, gee, it's okay. You know, this happens. We've got this. They were, they were really good. Um, and I was obviously, I'm, I'm so fortunate to have teammates like that. Where did you finish at those games? And how did it affect your Olympic game experience? Did you let it affect the whole environment and experience for you? Yeah, well, we finished fifth in the end. It was disappointing because obviously we had gone in there with very high hopes and Olympic gold was, was the, you know, was our, our goal. It probably did wreck my Olympic experience, to be honest, because every time I think about Rio, I just think about that and I go there to race my bike and not for anything else. So for that to be in my memory, it, it did kind of, it was a great experience, I have to say, like, you know, you, you do have to experience Olympic game and Olympic Games and like you know the dining room and all of that kind of stuff like it's a great experience but at the end of the day you go there to win an Olympic gold medal and Mm. yeah you I did come home from Rio very very disappointed and like a a lot of my teammates as well. They always say four years a long time in between games and unfortunately now with COVID it's even longer. Um, We'll get to that shortly but I just want to go back to your heart condition and, and pick up when you were selected for Mitchelton Scott and you were in Italy and your uncle came over. You lined up for the tour of um, tour of Britain. What happened? Yeah, so uh, that day it was my first, it was stage one and it was my first big tour um, with the team. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was, I was yeah, really excited uh, and I was just in the controlled section of the race. So, you know, the race hasn't start, all the the whole peloton sitting behind a car for the for about 10Ks and it's kind of like you wave to the crowd and because there's a lot of people that come out and line the streets for this particular event. Mm. Um, and that's very easy. Like that's not very hard. But I remember just 
my heart just felt really like it was just racing. I would look down at my my Garmin and my heart rate was like 170 beats and I'm, you know, sitting at 100 watts, which is not very hard. Mm. And I'm like, wow, like maybe I'm just really nervous. Like this is my first event. Anyway, it would come back down a little bit and then it would just spike back up really quickly and I'd feel very, very out of breath. And I was like, oh, God, that doesn't feel very good. And I remember saying to one of my teammates, uh, Gracie Elvin at the time, Mm. being like, Gracie, I, I don't feel very good. Like my heart feels really funny. And she's like, Georgia, go back to the car and tell Marv. Like go back and tell the DS. Mm. And I knew that if I pulled out or I went back there, I, I can't start the next day. I, and it was the stage one. And I was like, mm. I'm going to let my teammates down. Like they, they need mm. as many riders as possible. So I was like, I'll give myself another 5Ks. Mm. And so I kept riding. And then there was a little pinch, which was probably a 30-second climb, and I remember my heart rate, like, it shot over 200, and I've never seen that before, and I was like, wow, I do not feel very good, and I was like, okay, and I told my other teammate, and she's like, Georgia, like, seriously, you need to go back and say something, Mm. and I was just like, oh, God, I don't really want to do this. Anyway, I, I just decided to stop, and it happened one more time, and this time, it was really bad. And I just was like, wow, I have to unclip and lay down. I went really light, mm. I really lightheaded and really, really dizzy. And it felt like at the time that I was having a heart attack and I was freaking out as well. So mm. I laid down mm. and then obviously got in the ambulance and they took me to the hospital. Um, and then I had numerous tests done. I was just so fortunate at the time that I had such great doctors there, Australian doctors as well. Because where we, where we also live in Italy, there's a uh, European uh, training base, which is the AIS. So we have mm. Australian doctors that travel frequently to and from. And they were just really, really good. And they made sure I, I got all the care that I needed. And particularly with everything that had happened with my dad, they were, they were su- like super on board with everything. Um, mm. But they decided that it was best for me to fly home back to Australia where I could be looked after properly, looked after properly. And, yeah, that's when they found out I had uh, SVT, which is just where my heart will beat really, really quickly for short periods of time. Um, it could be up to a minute mm-hmm. and, and my heart rate is really, really high and it just comes on unexpectedly. So my heart makes a different pathway and it affects the electrical circuit in my heart. What were the doctors then telling you about this diagnosis, about this condition? And about your future in sport? Uh, yeah, so at the time, I, yeah, when I flew back to Tassie, um, sorry, back to Australia, I went to Melbourne and, yeah, got some more tests done there. And they said, you know, obviously you've got SVT and the best way to cure this or to fix it is to have an operation. And that operation involved, yeah, going in and they would burn a section of the heart, which is causing mm-hmm. a different pathway and it's causing the short, like the short pathway, which is causing the high heart rate. So that all got organised. And when they were in the, operation, the operating theatre, they realised where the particular place that I had this was in the junction of my heart. So mm-hmm. that meant that it was hereditary. So my dad, my mum didn't have it. So my dad obviously had it. Mm-hmm. And my kids will have it. And my sister also does have it as well. And she's had an operation since. They said that you know, this is something that it could come back, it could not. 
And they've also picked up that I did have some scarring in my heart as well. So they refer to it as scarring the same as a 40-year-old. So, yeah. And when they said that, I was like, wow, like that's not very good. And they were like, well, obviously what you're doing to your body and in particular like cycling um, isn't helping your heart. Like obviously it's it's damaging it. Mm. And initially they were like, we only want you to ride to 2020 and Mm. you might have to to stop then. And at the time this was like 2017 and I was like, yeah, no, that's okay. I just need to make the next Olympic Games. Like that's fine. But now I've had more, since then I've had more tests done because I'm still loving riding my bike and I don't think I would like to stop after the Olympics. I have been given all clear because the scarring hasn't progressed. So initially when they said 2020 and then that's it, um, and you said, yeah, I was like, okay, I'll just make the next games. Was that really how you felt? Or was there like extra pressure to go, all right, I've got three years now to do everything that I ever dreamed of I wanted to achieve in this sport? Was that added pressure? Because obviously as an athlete, you're already thinking, I want gold in this race, this race, this race. But what kind of extra pressure did that then place on you or did it? Yeah, no, it did place extra pressure on me because like I... I wanted to achieve so much on the bike mm. and so to try and fit that into a three-year block, it's like, oh, my God, like I'd, I probably wouldn't have another opportunity to race my bike overseas with a professional team um, because I would have to be back in Australia for the track and, you know, what if things don't work out? What if I still love riding my bike? Like I don't want to be – I want my retirement or the time that I decide to stop riding my bike be on my own terms and mm. not from, you know – from a health issue, especially when at the time I was like 22, 23. Was it a bit like unlocking a bit of a puzzle with your dad and why he was so fit and healthy at 44 and died of a heart attack? Was that the, the missing piece of, of that puzzle to explain his death? Yeah, well, for me, I think like they still, to this day, to be honest, they still don't have really any idea of why he had such a huge heart attack. But, you know, I've been told that you can't, like, you can't die from SVT. But in some ways it's just like, well, you know, if you have a problem with your heart, it obviously isn't very good and depending on how long he's had this for. And, you know, for me, I, I felt these murmurs or these irregular heartbeats for such a long time, mm. but I just thought it was normal. And until mm. I had had the operation and thought, and then I realised, oh, actually, I feel really good now. Then looking back, I'm like, oh, my God. Like I was, yeah, I would, I remember just being in the shower and having to sit down like and not be able to put my hands above my head because my heart rate would skyrocket. And wow. Wow. that's not normal. But for me, I was mm. like, oh, well, I must be really tired from training. I must be a little bit fatigued. Um, mm. But now it all kind of makes sense. And maybe that's something that my, my dad obviously had it um, and just thought, well, that's just him. Have you reached out to, because I know Kyle Cha- uh, Chambers, Kyle Chalmers had, it was he, did he have SVT and Greg Welsh as well, other athletes? Have you ever spoken to any other athletes who've gone through this? Um, no, but I, I haven't spoken to Kyle um, or Greg, but I've, I've followed their story and I, I've known that they've had numerous operations, well, Kyle has. And just the more people that I've spoken to, like even out on the bike, um, they're like, oh, yeah, like I get that sensation and I've had friends that have then gone to get 
checkups and like, oh yeah, it turns out I have SVT. And it's actually quite common, but Mm. um, people just don't realize that they have it. And sometimes it doesn't like the occurrence of when it happens is really irregular. So I remember my surgeon saying to me that, you know, some people, most people can have it and they only get it once a month. But in my Mm. case, I'm getting it, you know, probably five to 10 times a day. And so that Mm. needs to, that needs to stop. How has it changed your performance? If you had this heart condition and didn't know about it and you were competing at the highest level, getting selected in the Rio Olympics in the Australian team, and now you've had this operation, how has it affected your performance? You said you felt great after the operation. Does that mean that your performance has increased even more, like it's made a big difference? Yeah, well, I thought it, I definitely think it has. Um, It was just more about like, me feeling on the bike and how I feel on the bike and even my recovery, you know, I'm not laying down and feeling my heart race and having to get back up to like reset my heartbeat again. And mm. it's just, just my general overall well-being and how I feel day to day. I'm not on a three hour training ride and I'm, you know, I'll go up a hill and then I'm like, Oh my God, like I feel my heart. It's, mm. I just get through the training a lot easier because it's not, I'm not worrying about other things. But I suppose at the time I didn't even think it was an issue. But now I realise how much better I feel now. And, yeah, definitely would help my performance. Yeah, look out. Have you had to change anything in your training? Uh, Recycling Australia had to change anything in your program because of this heart condition now or extra monitoring or anything like that? Uh, no, like they're Cycling Australia really on the ball with it though. Like I get mm. regular checkups um, with my heart. I, I go and I wear um, a monitor every six months just to make sure everything's going really well. But in regards to training, I don't, I don't have to train, change anything. Let's talk about Tokyo because as I mentioned before, four years, as usually everyone says, is a long time between games. Now with COVID, it's even longer. We know your story, what you told us about what happened in Rio and how, des- I won't say desperate, how much you were waiting for Rio for your chance to make amends and have that Olympic experience. When you first heard about the postponement, of the games or when COVID hit, what was your reaction? Because you'd only just been selected for the Australian team and, and had news come through confirmed in, in the team and your ticket to, to Tokyo. Yeah. Um, initially when we first got told it was, we had actually had just come off a three-week break. Um, it was after the World Championships. We had about three weeks off and we thought, all right, we'd been training for one week and everyone was super motivated. Everyone was like, right this is our time. We didn't have the best world championships. So everyone was really driven to start, you know, stepping up again. And I remember, I remember really clearly, actually, we did um, some motor pace efforts on the road. And afterwards, everyone's like, do you think the games are going to go ahead? And everyone was talking about it. Mm. And I was like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. And then I remember we got a call the next Mm. day and yeah, they were like, no, look, the games are going to be postponed or at the moment they're not going ahead. We didn't really know what was going to happen at that time. Mm. And I was really disappointed. But in saying that, I was also really, really motivated. Like for me, my finish line wasn't Tokyo. I had mm. p- planned to ride my bike for longer. So if it, it, wasn't, it mm. wasn't a massive impact mm-hmm. on me like it was for some of my other teammates that had other plans after mm. Tokyo. Um, they wanted to start a new chapter of their life. And mm. that's where it was probably harder 
for our team, not necessarily individuals or myself. I was like, okay, that just gives me more time to be better. You're still training with the girls and keeping motivated. How are you keeping that motivation up? And because you are all in um, in South Australia still, borders are locked down at the moment. Um, so, so how is it for you guys? I'm watching on your Instagram stories and everything of some really cool rides around South Australia that you're doing. Yeah, look, we in South Australia, we've actually been very lucky with our lockdown restrictions. Um, you know, we we did some different things when, once we got told about um, the postponement of the Olympic Games. You know, I went mountain bike riding, tried went just tried some different stuff, which was really fun and really got my my mm. love for cycling back and I could ride whenever I wanted to not that I don't ever love the sport it's just that with our training routines it's just like one day the next day you're at the track you're in the gym Mm. you're on the road whereas now you just had so much freedom and I could ride for as long as I wanted or as short as I wanted I could just roll down to the coffee shop if I wanted to I could you know do some (laughs) do some mountain bike rides um and yeah we were very lucky because our national parks weren't closed and we could still train. Um, at the moment, our, we've just started back into a really, we had some time off again. We had about three weeks off mm-hmm. and we started back into our training now. And yeah, everyone's really motivated because, you know, it's yeah less than a year to go now until the Olympic Games. As the months tick by though, do you get concerned that next year's Games could again be postponed or even cancelled? Yeah, I do. I do worry about that. It could potentially happen, but at the moment I am, it's there in my head, but I'm still, you know, acting like it's going ahead until we get told otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's no point worrying over something Mm -hmm. that hasn't even happened yet or haven't even, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to be really positive about it all. And I'm still loving riding my bike and there's, we'll have, I'll have more events after, you know, I've got a lot of things Mm -hmm. I can look forward to, but yeah, it would it would be very devastating if if it got cancelled. That's for sure. But I'm trying not to think about that at the moment. <laughs> well, Georgia, my final question is something that I post to all our guests, um, and I want to know what advice would you give your ten year old self, little Georgia Baker? For me, I would give myself the advice that be proud of yourself and enjoy your success along the way, and celebrate your wins, and yeah, just to be kind to yourself. I love that. Georgia Baker, thank you for joining me on On Her Game. Thanks very much, Sam. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Darcy Thompson, executive producer, Jennifer Goggins.